Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Mastering the Room, brought to you by the Graduate School of Political Management at the George Washington University. I'm your host, Steve Pierce. Every episode on the show, we'll sit down with some of the brightest minds in politics, advocacy, and communications. They'll give us a behind-the-scenes look inside the room where it happens and offer their tips for how you can not only get in the room, but master it just like they did. New episodes drop on Mondays, so be sure to subscribe to Mastering the Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your preferred podcast listening app may be. And if you like what you're hearing, please give us a rating or review. Just a few seconds of your time can really help us spread the word and reach more listeners just like you. And if you want to learn more about GSPM, feel free to check out our website at www.gspm.gwu.edu. And now, without further ado, here's a brand new episode of Mastering the Room. Hello and welcome to Mastering the Room. I'm your host, Steve Pierce. Every week we take a behind-the-scenes look inside the room where it happens, guided by some of the brightest minds in politics, advocacy, and communications. This week on the show, we're joined by Mindy Finn, an alumna of the political management program at GSPM and a 15-year veteran of digital politics who has led digital and technology programs for the Republican National Committee, Mitt Romney, and George W. Bush, among many others. She was also a candidate for the vice presidency in the 2016 elections alongside her ticket mate, Emmett McMullen. And she's now the co-founder and executive director of Stand Up America, where she continues her lifelong efforts to give a voice to more Americans in our democracy and inspire her fellow Americans to defend their freedoms. Mindy, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Absolutely. I'm happy to do it. So let's let's start at the beginning. Where does your story kind of begin? Where were you born? What was your family like? What, what was young Mindy like as a kid? So I grew up in a suburb of Houston, Texas. My family was originally from New York, but they moved to Texas outside of Houston, seeking kind of warmer weather and higher quality of life. I grew up most of my life with, from age two on with a single mom, uh, which was unique in my community. It wasn't very common. And my mom built a business out of our garage. She was an accountant uh, in order to kind of balance being a mom. So she was really ahead of her time. You know, I'd say that I think just my nature is somebody who is independent, very serious, very focused. I loved, I was beyond my years in a way, the way I behaved as a kid. Um, people would call me a little adult. I liked eating salad and reading books and, you know, doing those kinds of things. I wanted games to be very fair and, you know, sometimes um, would get in squabbles with local neighborhood kids because I felt they weren't operating or playing fairly and I had a hard time just kind of enjoying and being like a, a you know a naive kid um but you know also part of that was shaped by my upbringing and I kind of felt like I was more of a partner and a helper to uh, my mom than than really a kid I aspired to really get out of where I was from it felt really um I I loved it it was a wonderful and safe and Sort of easy upbringing, but I wanted to explore the world and uh, and and kind of spread my wings, and so I ended up um, you know, going to college outside of state and making my way to D.C. Did you guys talk about politics at home? How did you kind of become kind of what's your path into politics? How do you figure out this is like a thing I can do for my career and that I'm interested in? We did talk about politics at home. We watched the news on a, a regular basis. I remember well elections that were going on and kind of school mock elections. 
I, uh, you know, having we had a Bush 92 bumper sticker up in my kitchen mm. that I think probably was there for 20 years mm. afterwards. Um, just as a legacy bumper sticker. So we, we did, uh, you know, I don't say we, I don't think we were the most political family. Uh, we were close to a next door neighbor who was very involved in local elections and took me, I remember distinctly, to an election night party for somebody who was running for state representative. And again, like I said, I was that kind of focused and nerdy kid. <laughs> a lot of the kids were running around, and I was probably around eight or nine, was glued to the TV watching the results come in from all the various elections. So I took a lot of interest in that. I also remember well the um, Gulf War in 1991 mm -hmm. and took a ton of interest in watching that uh, CNN. You know, it was one of the first military about, you know, events that was covered 24-7. At the time, it was pretty revolutionary, and I was I was glued to that, and I would wear the like patriotic T-shirts about it to school on a regular basis. So you go to to college out out of state, and you said eventually make your way to to D.C. How do you go about kind of starting to break into this field, which is not a normal field for a lot of people? People don't understand really how it works. It's different than you know going to get a job at the local company. How did you kind of break into this field and and start a career in politics? Yeah, great, great question. I look. I think a lot of it was based on circumstance. Uh, I kind of the, by nature of my age. I in college I I went to Boston University for undergrad. I majored in journalism. A lot of what you learn is about political journalism. I did an internship in DC my senior year where I actually worked as a journalist uh, covering Congress for a, a Connecticut newspaper. That's the mm. way the the program worked. That semester ended up being 9/11. And um so <laughs> I really you know, I was jumped right into the deep end and and had a pretty rigorous in real life type education that semester about covering uh, an, a monumental event. I was 20 years old, and so for, you know there there was that. And then I did some internships. Um, you know, I did an internship at that time for CQ roll was CQ at the time. It was before it was CQ roll call, and there was a quote unquote. I was assigned to the quote unquote new media division, hmm. which did not have a full-time person oh. at all. There was someone who was a reporter who understood how important the internet was in <laughs> politics and communicating political information. And so he took it on as a side project, and I was his intern, essentially managing the website for CQ. And I had an opportunity to write unique stories for that website that didn't have that much oversight hmm. because most of the rest of the institution didn't recognize its importance. So that was that was fantastic. I also did an internship for the Boston Herald, where again I was also assigned to the new media division. I really I hadn't gone to school for you know I was not a computer scientist. I was not I had not gone to school as a graphic artist, but I I kind of taught myself some code and Photoshop that was required for for those positions. And then when I went to work on the Hill after college. I was fortunate enough to get a job on the Hill. I decided not to pursue journalism, instead to kind of go into the belly of the beast. Uh, having those skills just sort of put me in a position of running the email newsletter and doing the website. And ultimately, I was recruited off the Hill to the Bush reelect to do that work for the campaign. Yeah. And so you were kind of, you would worked on the Hill. You go, you work for the Bush reelect in 04 on the digital side. This is 
you know, the internet is still very new, right? It had existed in some form in the 2000 election, but this is really when it becomes, I think, a bigger part of our electoral campaigns. What was it like to kind of be on the vanguard of figuring out this new tool, which obviously has come so much to dominate our politics and digital is such a huge part of our election campaigns now. Um, but at the time, it was very new. What was it like to kind of be on the on the forefront of that? It was leading edge for sure, which was very exciting, but still felt a bit isolating because every day involved sort of making a case for why what you were working on mattered, why it was mm. important, why it was something more than just a website, or why it was something more than just technology. I mean, there were still people in the campaign, senior people, even people, communicators who should have a grasp on the media that would come and think we were the division to fix their computer. Mm. And so, uh, but, you know, real kind of revolutionary things were happening at the time. It was the first you know, that, that didn't really get as much press attention. Later mm -hmm. on, the same types of tactics got press attention as if they were revolutionary. Things like money bombs, where you could rapidly raise a lot of online money and set goals, digital targeting for advertising. We we did that. The Creating videos at the time, you know, we just called them web videos mm -hmm. that then made their way to cable news or evening news and then had, you know, ton this is pre-YouTube, but they right. still got tons of views and hits. You know, those, those kinds of things. And so... Um, and obviously the email campaigns, you know, I would say it was a huge opportunity because it was so I, – I, I believed and saw right away it's where everything was headed. And I had opportunities to do things that others my age, I was 23, didn't have because, again, people didn't recognize the importance. So like I would write emails from the president and those would get approved through the White House. And even though I was the digital person, I would be writing for him right. and writing for other figures. But it was hard. Friends of mine that were in a lot of my kind of peers were in kind of straight up communications and press. And they admittedly would often say, I don't really, I would be so excited about our work, but they would say, I don't really understand it. Interesting. And so you obviously win that election. The president gets reelected, uh, which I'm sure was very exciting to you. Uh, and you go from there to to the Republican National Committee, correct? Um, and you're 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 in D.C. Uh, is that around the time that you decide that you're going to go to grad school and come here to GSPM? It was. So I had th really had thought about going to law school and had taken the LSAT and applied and been accepted and all that right around the time that I was recruited to the Bush campaign. And so I put it quote unquote, on hold, uh, because I recognized I couldn't do both. I was going right. to go at night anyway, but I couldn't do both. But then after the campaign, I loved being on the campaign mm -hmm. so much, and I knew that was the path I wanted to pursue. And so the idea of going to law school anytime soon didn't make sense. I didn't want to put aside grad school, and I you know, I, I knew I was on a more political path. So that's when I decided to, to instead you know, come to GSPM. What was your uh, GSPM experience like? Obviously, you're working a job during the day at the RNC. Uh, you're coming to school at night. Uh, what did you enjoy most about kind of your GSPM experience? Did you have a favorite class, favorite professor, something that was really valuable to you that you really enjoyed coming, you know, at the end of a long day? Those are long, hard days when you're working on those political committees and then coming to grad school. What kind of, what, yeah, what made it so worth it? Yeah, so it did. What I enjoyed is being able to get a deep education in areas that I was not working on day to day. Mm -hmm. So, because um, yeah, it was even leading it. Now there's a lot of, kind of digital communications and digital campaigning classes. Back then it was so new, there wasn't even a lot of that. But I learned a lot about polling mm -hmm. and data and research methods and also about campaign finance law, 
which I was not as cognizant of this at the time, but those have come become really valuable throughout my career. Um, you know, sort of the now we're in a place when we're digital and data is melding in some ways. And so uh, having that experience and understanding polling at the time was useful. Campaign finance law is something that I had to deal with every single day, unfortunately. Yeah, it's it's a Byzantine system. There's a lot of rules. Um, in that in that vein, what what would you say? Kind of looking back now, you've gone on and had the career that you've had. What was the most valuable thing you you took away from your your time at GSPM that has helped you kind of succeed in in, in your career? A couple things. I mean, first of all, um, just building a practice of continuous learning. I believe that. The balance between, I mean, the, the GFPM program is experiential mm-hmm. as a program. The professors are those who are obviously working in the field, but it's still taking kind of a um, a step away from the, for at least for me, from my day to day work to to kind of focus learning, and that's a practice that I've tried to continue as busy as I am. That I want to be continuously learning. So I usually have. I'm in a consultant where I have a lot of projects, but a lot of times I have kind of one major project is 80% of my time or even my own company that was 80% of my time, but then invest in kind of something, the other 20% that's really stretches my, um, you know, stretches me to to learn and focus on something else. And I think I really built that in my time and in grad school. Uh, you know, I did the thesis process was something that was important because I did focus on my field at the mm-hmm. time, and it gave me an opportunity to really, um, you know, think in a more systematic way and thorough way about where the field of digital communications and campaigning was headed, uh, which you know was kind of has been infinitely valuable. So since you've graduated from uh, from GW, you've gone on. You've had a ton of a ton of different jobs. You've founded your own media companies and consulting firms. You've worked with tech giants like Twitter. Uh, you've worked on presidential campaigns like you did with Mitt Romney in 08. Um, and you even run for vice president yourself in 2016. Out of all of that, all of that stuff, which is a wide range of different experiences, what what's kind of been your favorite job? When you look back, what do you what do you consider yourself to be most most proud of that you that you were able to do? Really, the vice presidential campaign, I'd say I'm most proud of because it was the biggest risk, I think. It took the most courage. It was a curveball. It was not something I expected to do. I, like I think a lot of people in politics, running for office is always there in your mind. For some people, it's something they know they want to do. I've not been that person. I've been one of these that I'd like to serve, and if there's an opportunity at some time to run myself, I will. But but I most of my time was spent supporting other people running for office. Mm-hmm. So kind of jumping into that and uh, sort of having to just step up and, you know, without a lot of time to prepare and a lot of the traditional supports that you may otherwise have was the greatest challenge uh, in my career, but, but also the most rewarding. And what was really rewarding about it – is to be able to be communicating and meeting and be a voice for people every single day. Yeah. And obviously running for a national federal office like vice president, that's like really putting yourself out there in a way that few people ever do, right? So what was that decision like? You said that it was, you know, that took some courage. Um, that had, you're kind of, how did that 
opportunity come to you? And how did you decide to that this is a thing that you want to do? Because that, it, like I said, that's putting yourself out there for sure. I didn't have a lot of time to decide, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is probably a good thing. This was a three-month campaign. I was on the campaign for the last month and a half. Mm-hmm. And I had been kind of an activist um, for this, quote-unquote, never Trump movement, Mm -hmm. even working within the Republican Party. So it was a very strange time. And that was my kind of moonlighting work. My day-to-day work was consulting for various civic technology entities and doing some political work. And I pretty much decided after the convention and been sort of somewhat, frankly, had failed at the effort to try to get a different Republican candidate to run that I needed to just take a take a breath and focus on you know my consulting work and and just sort of play it out and then when Evan McMullen decided to run initially I resisted getting involved in the campaign but as I watched the news play out I decided I really had to do something and when I agreed to meet with the campaign and fast forwarding my first sort of meeting with Evan was had been presented to me by his staff as him vetting me to play Jill Stein in debate prep because mm. there was supposed to be a CNN town hall or debate among the third party candidates. And so they had been preparing for that. So when I did kind of my quote unquote interview with him, my first one, he told me he had a specific ask for me potentially at the end of that call. But I thought that ask would be whether I'd play Jill Stein in debate prep, mm. which I thought was kind of funny. I was like, why me? I guess because I'm a petite woman. Um, (laughs) And, but that could be kind of fun. So we had this long conversation about our values and the issues and, you know, our careers and our, our personal lives and all of that. And I guess he probably said that too. So there would be an out if he decided Mm -hmm. after that, that that's not what he was going to ask. But at the end of the call, he asked if I would consider being his running mate. And it was a shock, (laughs) but I, I said, you know, obviously that I was flattered and I think about it. And I thought about, I conferred with my husband and I was at home at the time. And we, within about 10 minutes, I had decided I would tell him that, you know, bar, like we'd have to do some more kind of discussion and inter, and, but I was interested, interested enough that yes, I, I would do it. And I, I mean, I was hesitant, but I just, I felt so motivated in this really important, contentious and divided election where I knew there was a constituency, frankly, that I was part of mm-hmm. that felt um, not well represented. And I, I thought it was important to have a young, um, fresh kind of other option for those uh, conservatives and Republicans who weren't thrilled about their options. Obviously, even though that you were kind of only on the campaign for, I think you said a month and a half, you still spent a lot of time out on the campaign trail, tra- campaign trail met lots of people, had a lot of different experiences. Do you have a favorite story or experience or moment that stands out for you from all of that, even now that you're, you know, a couple years removed? I do. Uh, and I, I've, got, I've had this question a lot. And I don't know for others if this is, they, they find this the most exciting, but there was a particular, so we focused, ended up focusing for the last month, three weeks to a month on Utah. That's where we had the best opportunity. And, and we did well there. We had the first best result for a third party campaign, 21 and a half percent of the vote. There there was a big event at the state capitol where all of our elected official endorsers kind of stood behind us and we had an opportunity to speak with, you know, a, a lot of press. And one of the reasons that was my favorite moment is that it just it felt before that 
at a press con- before that press conference, we had a meet and greet, and any state legislator was legislator was able to come in and ask questions, and it ended up being extremely contentious because there was I would divide it not perfectly, but I would divide it generally as the old guard and the new guard kind of by age and generationally mm-hmm. and the old guard thinking that what we were doing was antithetical to the party and our beliefs and how could we and how dare we and you know the younger generation really motivated and excited by what we were doing and those were largely the people who were endorsing us and it it just was this quintessential moment of this is this is real democracy we were in the state capitol in a state with these legislators kind of you know verbally battling over whether it was appropriate for another option with within kind of their tent to run. And I truly believe in our democracy. It needs to be more competitive and more open. And the scene reminded me of, I don't want to like, I don't want to inflate kind of the importance, but the scene reminded me of some of those early scenes in our kind of founding, mm-hmm. um, just in kind of the, how contentious it was. Yeah. And you mentioned you guys, you you guys end up spending a lot of time in Utah, having a, a really great showing uh, in Utah, twenty one and a half percent, one of the great, one of the strongest showings of a third party candidate uh, in presidential politics. We know how that ends up going nationally with Donald Trump winning the election, um, and you kind of you move on from there, and you co-found Stand Up Republic with uh, with Evan McMullen. Um, and you all like to say that you're building a cross-partisan movement to defend democracy in America. We're obviously living in a time with high political polarization. Um, feels to a lot of folks like it's getting higher and more polarized every day. Um, how are you all trying to bridge those divides and, and bring folks together, even in a time when you know some may disagree whether you know democracy even really needs to be defended defended at all is it in need of this defense that you guys are are trying to to mount it is getting more polarized and that's the thing that we're working to address um there is a growing democracy reform movement in the country and that's a movement that both works to defend important pillars of our democracy so the separation of powers and the rule of law, media's role. And that's that's an important piece. And that is a piece we focused on for our first year and a half as we felt that those things were under assault. And we worked by you know, through federal advocacy and as we stood up a grassroots movement across the country. Increasingly, that movement, while it's still working to defend, is focusing on the, the proactive strengthening side of the coin and working on ways to uh, to ameliorate polarization through reforms. So by expanding kind of voting access, by you know ballot reform, pushing back on gerrymandering, and and those are the real political electoral reforms. Those require a constituency, so that's a lot of our work. This is where my experience in um, in data and digital campaigning comes into play. Uh, we uh, are messengers, and we do a lot through kind of traditional and social media to lead on messaging and and mobilize our members and supporters. But we also are working on data and technology platforms that will help mobilize the what we call the exhausted majority in the country that does not feel uh, super excited or wedded to either party. They generally are not in the ideological extremes. They want to see government work. They're not happy with what's happening. And, and so 
uh, we're working on uh, the platforms and the tools to empower the organizations who mobilize those constituencies and work on those reforms, and also to empower those voters themselves to get involved, to you know, to persuade them, to engage them, and to mobilize them. This is, won't be a surprise to you, but you know, if anyone looks at kind of public opinion polls, they'll see that kind of trust in institutions as a whole. Uh, is at an all-time low right now. And that's particularly true among young people, obviously. Um, what advice would you give to a young person on kind of, A, why they should care to get involved in this whole politics thing when they have so much distrust and they see what's, you know, what's going on, they might not like it. And B, how can they find their own voice or their own path or their own lane through which they can contribute to or participate in our democracy? If you're a young person in America and you're looking at many of our major institutions, it's I cannot blame you for thinking they've they've failed you. Uh, but institutions are made are are they not just these kind of innocuous you know entities? They're not buildings. They're made up of people and people who are making them function. People who play various roles, and they're not static. They're dynamic. They change over time. My advice to to young people is that if you want to see change, then you need to be part of that change. the 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 path to do it is to to start you know where you can. If you're, uh, you can make a difference locally. I mean, there's examples now, and this I find this really inspiring all across the country of people serving on city councils or running for mayor or serving in state legislature before they're 25 years old. The the, the there are not barriers to do that. You know, and rather than sitting and kind of complaining about it, stand up and and do something. Think about the talent and the ingenuity that you have, and how you can uh, how you can apply it to the process. Like anything else, you know, seek out mentors, people who are working in the system. You know, we are at a time now because there's such distrust and agitation and and disgust. I'd say at some points that. Selling democracy, at least in our work, is like selling water in a desert. I think it's similar for for young people that there's um, uh, the older generations, for the most part, even though they may have a certain way of doing things and may not always admit it, they're eager for that change too and, and are pretty open and amenable to young folks that kind of raise their hand and come to them and say, you know, can I, how can I help? How can I get involved? Um, you know, I, I've found that that and if those who are in the system are as open to that as as they've ever been. I've got uh, one more question for you. There's a lot there's a lot of opinions about what makes for a successful career. And you've obviously had some great success in a number of different ways, even all the way up to running for the second highest office in the land. Uh, in your experience, what have you found to be most important? What you know or who you know? Or is it some combination of both? I'd frame it differently. I mean, yeah, I, I think that it's it's what you know or who you know. I mean, those are both important things. I kind of go back to the adage of it's um, you know it's more perspiration than inspiration. Mm -hmm. There are many people out there who have good connections or have you know the good ideas, um, or certainly are really smart and have the knowledge. The the wow factor, the way that you kind of take it and put it into, first of all, you have to kind of be be brave. Um, but but second is you have to work really hard. And I, I just, I, I think in some, there are cases where people are able to move along in their career without working hard, but those are the exceptions, not the rule. 
Mindy Finn, the co-founder and executive director of Stand Up America. Thank you so much, Mindy, for taking the time to uh, chat with us today and, and sharing a little of your experience with our audience. Appreciate it. Happy to. Thanks for having me. 